back again. Welcome to Lock Screen Convos. My name is Tenji. And I'm Uzo. Yeah, so this is our fourth recording. Uh, who would have thought it was done? This is our fourth recording on this uh, on this journey, and it's been exciting. It's been uh, so far. I mean, with the little feedback we've been getting, it's definitely been encouraging. I'm looking forward to doing a lot more with you. And for me personally, I've, I've learned so much. It's definitely uh, helped me in putting things in and getting some clarity in my ideas and things I need to do. How about you, Zoh? Yeah, it has been really helpful for me. Uh, quite surprised. I mean, the idea was to talk and motivate ourselves and focus on just, you know, I, ideas between us and the 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 process we're taking of sitting down and recording, like, sorry, doing a bit of research first and then recording and talking about it and sharing it with others and getting their feedback. Um, there's been a lot that I didn't anticipate um, for my sister who listened to the listen to one of the recordings and gave me feedback and I was shocked. I'm like, the girl made it sound like a TED talk. Like right. yeah, maybe I I should go back and listen to it because uh, <laughs> she made it sound way better than I thought it was. And um, makes me um, glad that the effort we're putting in is useful, not just to ourselves, but for other people. And um, I think in that first episode, we talked about uh adding value and yes. this was an unintentional we weren't scheduled we weren't like i mean i wasn't i it was like i said it was a conversation for myself and i guess tunji but like for other people to get value from it i feel truly grateful that um it it, it worked out that way and um it's very motivating to keep doing so for sure i mean just to let you know i mean i already have like a couple of other topics down the line that i'll definitely like to discuss because it just seems like the moment I learn one new thing something else comes up and it's, it's just so much to learn but I think above all is apart from just learning it's also us you know applying these things and applying these things that we're learning to our lives and you know hopefully it's something that we can look back and say yes this was definitely worth it uh, but today we're I'm, we're just going to discuss something that I think is pretty interesting because it's it's not like a very it it sounds like a very generic term but when we put it all together it, it, it does have an interesting mix and so uh, we're discussing the philosophies of success and the idea really was for us to research companies and I guess people doesn't necessarily have to be in the business world who have achieved some form of success and try to understand what their philosophies are, their principles, what guides them. Because I truly believe, I really believe that people who are successful must have some form of ideology that they subscribe to. Even if they claim that they don't subscribe to an ideology, I believe that there's certain things that they are driven by and that they follow every single day and it affects their directions, it affects their thought process, it affects their decisions, and ultimately it makes them better people or worse. And um, so understanding these philosophies, I think we are going to look at different different case studies where we just talk about different people and different companies. Um, for my section, actually, before I go into the names, um, in, in, in your research, Uzo, what did you think about in your, in your research? What did you discover when you're researching these philosophies? 
Uh, I, hmm, it's a good question. I, the fourth, as soon as you told me the topic you wanted to discuss, I basically took the four people, well, four of the people I really look up to or respect. And, um, I think are the people that I think are successful and I put them down as my, my, my candidates. And then I mm-hmm. formed, I tried to extract what I thought was common, common points between them. So I wouldn't say that I went on a brand new search to find new philosophies or new people, but more so things that I already believed in and, or, people that I already believed were successful and tried to sort of like draw a line between them to see where things matched up. And, you know, if you squint well enough, you can see philosophies, even if that's not something they publicly say or talk about, or at least those traits in them that made me attracted to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is kind of biased to my preference, and um, I, my definition of success is uh, a great, uh, someone with great entrepreneurial or engineering accomplishments, preferably right. both, but, you know, um, e- what, either one would suffice for me as, as uh, successful. So there, uh, on my list, there's, there's, a, there, there's a person who created tons and tons of technology at that affects the way we live our lives today this person like probably many like a hundred or 200 years out they they did all they they invented some really insane awesome things and uh but they did they weren't a financial success in fact the last portion of their life they um from what i understand they were um living like living in hotels and then Mm. they'll dodge out when the bill (laughs) Uh, when they can't pay the bill and go to the next hotel and the, the the person was eventually found dead in a hotel that you know um and they they couldn't afford the bill they they were basically living um hand to mouth um they, they had no money so mm-hmm. this person wasn't a financial success but literally defined the way the world is powered today um mm-hmm. so I, I think their success for the engineering accomplishments. Um, the, the, the rest of them on my list are, are pretty financially successful. And um, they, they, they built companies, they made a lot of money, um, but they were also engineers in their own sense or in, in their own category. So um, I, I just wanted to be clear that my definition of success is not completely um financial it, mm. it, th- there were people who um th- there is one who is and that's actually the person on the top of my list he died broke didn't make a lot of money he did some awesome things but essentially was not a financial success and um right yeah but there there were traits between all of them i i think um they were they were, they were all creators they all created stuff mm-hmm. and um that is one commonality that hits all four of them even if they didn't all make money from it they were all creators and i think that's uh um uh, interesting because i i didn't think i like i hadn't intentionally chosen them because of that 
But by the time I written the list down, that was the first thing that right. jumped out at me. So I think in my own research, uh, the moment I uh, discussed the title with you, the first person I thought about was Ray Dalio. And the reason why is because he he has a book called Principles, which he really which he released uh, I think four years ago or so. Um, can't remember now, but it, it just stuck with me because I read that book and it's, it's quite a it's quite a heavy bunch of text, but it's you know, it's a New York bestseller and he just talks about um, his philosophies and the principles that he has followed throughout his career. And just to put in context, uh, Ray Dalio is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, and which is the largest hedge fund in the world. And what what I what I got from the book was it wasn't so much as the money per se. I mean, he's a billionaire. He's worth about twenty billion dollars or something currently, and, and manages other people's money. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I'm pretty. I mean, to to take on that kind of risk, you must be, you know, I guess a certain level of skill and um, dedication to the craft that would take you. You know, I mean, he's had this company since the seventies, I think, and so he must obviously know what he's doing. Um, but what I got from it was he has also failed and we'll definitely get into that discussion pretty soon. Um, and I just found out he's, I found the principles very, you know, on paper, they look very straightforward, but they're so practical. And uh, the first one that I want to talk about, one of his first principles was embracing reality and dealing with it, uh, which I think is so profound. Um, I, I, so for me personally, sometimes like I get into that mix of or into that dilemma of deciding, should I follow my heart? Should I follow after my dreams or embrace reality? But he has this I, a philosophy about hyper-realism, which is he's a big dreamer, but he also understands that he has to operate in the real world and combine these two together. And I think he also talked about so he had this equation saying um, having big dreams plus embracing reality plus determination will give you a successful life. Um, when you when you when you see that, what do you think about that? Do you think that um, what does that mean to you when you hear that? Uh, that's a good one. I think um, that principle cuts across all four of my um, all, all four people that I've i put down as successful individuals. They were all big dreamers and they dealt with the world as it is. Um, basically, they saw a vision of how the world could work and they worked relentlessly to get the world from where it was to where they saw it, where they wanted it to be. Do, do you think they were also trying to change the world or let me put in better context. Do you think in embracing the world or embracing reality, they, they accepted the, the laws of nature for what it was and, and then applied or apply themselves into that reality or were they trying to bend the laws? Because with Ray Dalio, from what I understood from him, he wasn't trying to bend the rules. He wasn't trying to, twist and turn the laws of nature he just accepted it for what it, for what it was and just learned how to adapt and that was like another thing that i saw in his principles from your research do you think they were 
adapting to the world or were they trying to fix the laws if you if you know what i mean hmm i don't that's a good question i don't know how they thought of if they were trying to uh <laughs> bend the laws of how the world operates or if they were trying to conform to it and work with it uh, but they definitely did mind-bending things, and they did bend the way the world was shaped and how it worked. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a practical example of why this is hard for me to answer. One of the number four on my list is Henry Ford. Right. And um, he invented the, well, not invented, but he popularized the automobile and built them at price points that the average person could afford and kept reducing the price over years, which made automobiles more common. Hmm. At the time he started his company, the next cheapest car, so he started selling the car for $850. The next cheapest car was $2,000. And those cars were typically used as for racing by rich people. Okay. So automobiles existed at the time and there were companies selling them, but they were race cars, not vehicles that the average person buys and drives to work and stuff like that. Now, um, Ford saw the, the, the car not as a rich person's toy, but as an every man's tool, as an everyday man's tool, and he started working towards that and building, and he spent tons of time and engineering resources to make sure that they could build a reliable vehicle at a low price, and doubled down even further over the next few years, engineering it better, but also reducing the price from mm. eight hundred and fifty to about six hundred dollars over the next few years, which made it possible for even more people to buy. And what he ended up doing was replacing the traditional means of transportation by, uh, with this vehicle. Was he as accepting that the world's transport is horses and trains and these things? Or did he see that, or was he trying to bend that? I don't know. Mm. But he did end up bending that and displacing existing transport systems or augmenting it like and, and you know roads are like today we look at tarred roads and it's like well duh but like you have to realize that back then there weren't as many they weren't as big there weren't extensive highway networks like we have now and yeah. um he has literally shaped like in it left an in, a, a massive imprint on the planet through his thing but was he trying to bend it or was he trying to conform and accept those rules? Hard for me to say, or at least I don't know at this point. Maybe more research into him would give me insights, but that's a hard question for me to answer. And all the other people on my list, I have the same level of they've done so much, but were they trying to change it or were they accepting and just working with it? I don't know. That, that, that makes a lot of sense, especially with the... Um, it like it's 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 gonna be hard to to 
to know, especially if he didn't say verbally, like he was trying to, you know, change some context or change some rule. Like Steve Jobs, where he's like, I want to put a dent in the universe. Okay, good. We understand that he's trying to, you know, but, but for other people, I, yeah, it's, it's harder for me to tell. Maybe, um, maybe some closer study. If I had that question in mind when I was doing my, like my research, maybe I would have noticed some things that would jump out to me or like a quote that isn't so big to me now mm. might have stood out to me in, in the research. It's interesting you mentioned Steve Jobs because I was actually going to go onto Apple. And, and the reason why it was, so you mentioned that Ford wasn't the first person to create an automobile because um, there were other existing players and, uh, but the cars were, or the automobiles were created for those who were already wealthy and they were for and were designed for for racing, not for everyday, I guess, residential driving. Commuting, yeah. Commuting, exactly. Now with Apple, what I saw was a kind of similar situation. So um, back in the 80s, I believe, um, the biggest computer manufacturer was IBM. And IBM was designed primarily for the business. As a matter of fact, IBM stands for International Business Machines. And um, they were obviously targeting like enterprise customers, business customers. And you can imagine these were very expensive machines. Kind of ironic for me to say they're expensive because Apple today is quite expensive too, but that's for another <laughs> day. Um, but well, the- ex- expensive commercial, uh, uh, expensive business versus expensive uh consumer is a completely different class. Very true. Very, I, I take that back. You're absolutely right. Because um, Apple's strength has always been in the consumer space, even though they do have things in organizations and businesses, whereas IBM was very, very much after the business market. So anyway, um, what I noticed was um, Apple went for simplicity. And that was uh, a key term that I saw them use, like even in their, in certain mission statements or even articles. Um, so what I read was, so this online, IBM was the enemy. Apple strives to make things simple for end users. IBM seems to several IT complexity, always underscoring how hard technology is to use. And I'm not sure if we had, that, we had this conversation earlier on, but one of the things I talked about was, making technology easily accessible to those who aren't necessarily as tech savvy. And there's definitely a market for the complex, you know, techie market, you know, enterprise business usage kind of market, but there's also a huge market for people who aren't necessarily tech savvy, but definitely want to do things with computers. So um, Apple embraced the design community, for instance, they embraced photographers, filmmakers, game designers, and, it's a testament till today that, you know, if you go to like a media company, most likely you will see more Apple computers as opposed to Windows. It's not impossible. As a matter of fact, I have worked in a company where uh, Windows was used for the designs and animations and all that and, and all that stuff. But a lot of companies still use Apple till today. Now, it won't, but I'm seeing a trend here. So Ford saw that the cars were designed for um, certain, uh, certain market, not for everyday people. And Apple saw the same thing. Computers were designed at the time for the big pockets, the big pocket, big business pockets, and not for the everyday consumer. How, as far as the philosophy goes, 
we talk about being people oriented again. Is this something that we should really be paying attention to? Is that an important part of the philosophy? Or is there anyone that you saw also who was also very people oriented, people driven, you know, thinking about making life easier for um, the everyday person? And how did that impact their philosophy? The the next person on the th- next person up, the third person on my list is James Dyson, and I think he fits the bill for to answer this question. Um, he spent a lot of time inventing things. Um, he invented a, a wheelbarrow that <laughs> I shouldn't call it a wheelbarrow, a ball barrow, and mm. it's essentially a wheelbarrow but without wheels. It uses a ball. Okay. And uh, the, there were some um, design reasons why that is more efficient and a better way to um, use, like, to, it was a better design because the, the ball gives you more, like, rotational, being able to turn it better. It also created a bit more surface area, so you did, like, it, you could use it on softer soil. Because it has like a wider footprint than a wheel. So like if there's a lot of load on it, a wheel gets heavy. It concentrates all that weight on that very tiny surface area. A ball has wider surface area. And so you could successfully use it on softer terrain without it dipping. It also made it easier to balance for turning. They're, 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 anyways, <laughs> that's an aside. But he invented the ball barrow. He invented a bunch of, or design the ball barrel, design a bunch of other things. But then he, his first real product was a vacuum cleaner. Mm. And this guy made like 5,000 plus pro, uh, prototypes of the vacuum cleaner. Hold on, and hold on, hold on. 5,000. Yes, 5,126 failed prototypes the five, the one hundred, the five thousand one hundred twenty seventh was the successful one that he that w- was the one that worked, and he now decided to take to market. Yeah, that like imagine making like a, a, just trying to make an app. I have to make like five thousand versions of it. The, just wow. like that's imagine that level of ridiculousness. Like, and he's using like resources, engineering, like hardware like physical components and stuff like that we're like writing code and it's like if i had to build an app five thousand times i'm gonna like I, throw I, it I'm, away. Quitting, I, I'm quitting that job you know <laughs> but he um anyways um he he created this um he created the prototype when it was successful he then tried to market it to other vacuum cleaner companies they all rejected it and um uh, he ended up, uh, at least the ones in the UK where he was, James Dyson ended up having to start selling it through a catalog in Japan. And it was sold at like, this was in the 1980s or something like that. And he sold it for like $2,000. Mm. And it was a high priced item. Um, he kept doing his thing. And his first real success in the US, sorry, in the UK, was when he started marketing the vacuum cleaner as uh, bagless. Like you don't need a bag to, right. you don't need to remove a bag to, cl- to clean out this vacuum cleaner. 
And that's when, like, not all the improved power or all the engineering capabilities that went into it, just the fact that you don't have to empty out a bag anymore. You don't have to keep buying replacement like bags for the dirt that it, mm. it, it sucks up. That was the turning point and started making the market, his local market at least, start really accepting that product. And um, so it, it was the convenience factor for the everyday person mm. that really started winning them over. Not the fact that like he, as an engineer, he's like done all these crazy, amazing optimizations to make something run. And it's like, oh, there's no bag. You don't have to deal with a bag anymore. And you're like, oh, what? That, that's it? Sign me up. And mm. that was the, um, I guess, people-focused part of it. Just one small step easier for them became a big, like the big motivation to try and use his product and win the market. Just making e the, the vacuum was already doing the job better than the competitors, but just focus the marketing now focusing on one less thing people had to do with their thing. And that weighed that that counted more than all the other innovations and improvements they had made. I'm I'm gonna sidestep a little bit for a second. Um you talked about the five thousand plus patents, which or sorry, five thousand plus prototypes which for me is still like mind-blowing and just last night i was thinking about you know the lean startup movement or the lean development uh, philosophies which have been quite popular in startup circles and I, I i did some thinking a lot of the people who are supporters of the lean movement having people who come from in a way, non-technical backgrounds. And they probably would frown at um, Dyson for doing what he did. His name is Dyson, right? Yes. They probably would frown I, at I, I think that's how it's pronounced. Okay. He's a British guy. I think he's a British guy also. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Yes, UK. They would have, I guess they would have frowned at his approach towards innovation where he's, he is building all these prototypes and to them it might be considered waste because he's not, I don't know if he did market research. I don't know if he, you know, to use some terms, got out the building and that kind of thing. But instead he just like, he was an engineer, I believe by training and he just, he knew how to build things. Right. And so um, he went into the process of improving his prototypes until he got the right one. Um, in as as someone who is a builder, as someone who is, uh, 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 you know, a, tr a, a technical person or a technical creator, would you be, would you lean more towards, would you like lean towards building prototypes first or would you want to like find out what people want before you build anything? How would you go about it? I... This, this is a trick question because right now I'm writing code and building something. And I don't think, I don't believe I've spoken to one end user if this is something they want. Mm. Um, I, so maybe I guess that answers <laughs> the question from my perspective. I think in theory and maybe in, in, in practice, it might be really wise to talk to people 
about what it is you want to make and do and, and build for them or for the world. But I also believe that there are things that like people, people aren't very good at predicting the future. Yes. And that includes your customers. And that also includes you, the builder. Um, there, I, I cannot remember what website I saw this on, but there, uh, somebody, uh, the company basically said that they invent on behalf of their customers. They predict a future and they make things or work towards that future. Mm. On be- right? Like, if you think about all the innovations and things that a lot of companies make, like, I don't believe Facebook is sitting down and like talking to us and like, should we release a marketplace? Mm. Should we, um, should we add a cryptocurrency uh, feature? Should we build our own cryptocurrency? Should we do this? Should we do that? I don't believe, you know, like, I don't believe Tesla, um, Elon Musk was sitting down and like took a poll from all the government leaders and said, should we build a, a reusable rocket to launch you guys stuff into space? You know, like people, see problems and your what you make is your pitch at solving people at solving that problem yes. and whether people whether those people have the vision that this thing can solve their problem that way or not is also kind of not your business right like ultimately you put it out there and it does it do people accept this vision just does it work can you iterate from your vision to a reality that meets in between for people um, who, who knows how this works. Um, that I guess that's the way I'm seeing it, that like you just try and solve the problem and hopefully the, the audience agrees with you or hopefully in your process to solve the problem, you learn enough that you can move from point A to point B. I mean, I'm inclined to agree because uh, when I read a lot of this, a lot of the lean text, it, it does sound to me like, um, and rightfully so, a, a good approach towards avoiding waste and you know not building things that make you run out of money and resources and customers. Right, and I mean that totally makes sense. But I think you you also lose out on that you know the ability to to build from within, right? And we talked about inspiration last week and this ability to um, observe things, not necessarily having to physically ask someone, oh, do you want this? How do you want that? And trying to do all this psychoanalysis, but instead just by proper observation and understanding people and their natural habitats, you know, and just building from that, build from inspiration. And I think for me, that's like, it sounds so much romantic, but I think it's always, it turns out to be, usually one of the best inventions. And that's, again, that's my own uh, personal opinion. So not to down, downplay anyone who, or downplay the lean startup movement or downplay any of that uh, work, but I do believe there's a place for people who are first, um, who are innovators first or creators first that truly like building. And maybe at the initial stage, they don't have 
they don't know. Think about a singer, right? A singer is not going to go, oh my gosh, would I like this song? Would I like this this guitar riff? No, they're just going to go to the studio, write a song and record and play for their friends, play for the label. If they like it, put it out there. But can you imagine if Beyonce was going out to the streets and saying, oh, I'm working on the next, next single. What would you like to hear? Would you want to hear about... Uh, about money, about mansions, about love. It's like, no, just do it from the heart and 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 create something and, and see what happens. If it doesn't work, throw it in the bin and try another one. Hmm. I I think um one of the things I I I agree with what you're saying. And one point or at least one angle I'd like to present is the fact that you are counting on your customers or consumers to have as much vision as you. And that usually isn't the case. Um, the, people who, the people who you can't expect the everyday person to have that deep long-term vision of what could be. Yes. And it usually, like I've read somewhere that if you have a good idea, it will take a lot of time and effort and cajoling just to get people to even listen, let alone like, understand and believe your vision and so the same you know the talking to your customer talking to potential customers is a really good and smart idea but that doesn't mean that those people are going to have the same level of vision or the same belief in the way you see the future that you know and so that is something you have to keep in mind that um that may or may not be um and actually, I will, I will say this. I am one of those people who doesn't easily believe in the future. Um, before this podcast, I was looking at, I, like, I, I, I've looked over a bunch of things that were like just a, a bunch of old conversations or contacts and um, just reminisced a little. And um, there's, a, there's a startup in Nigeria. Um, hmm. Piggy Vest. I don't know if you've heard of them. I have. Okay, cool. So you wouldn't believe it, but or maybe you know this, but the people who uh, started the, the the three of them, the three people, uh, the three younger people, the uh, I guess the ex- the developer, the marketer, and the head of the company, CEO, they live within one kilometer of where you and I lived in Nigeria. Oh, wow. I ran into them when I moved back to Nigeria in 2015 or 2016. I just like, I saw, I saw them and they were working on a startup and I met them then. And they were doing a startup about like a loyalty program. Um, I'm forgetting the name now. Paroles, paroles.ng. Okay. And it was basically a, a consumer, um, like, I, I don't know. Do you remember a company called Pizza Splash? Yes, I do. Definitely. Okay. So, <laughs> like, that's like only you and I are going to get this reference. I don't know how well they did. Or, I mean, again, this is me being a, the, the pessimist. But, like, they, they had a loyalty program with companies like uh, Pizza Splash and other small companies like the Arcade in the Estates, all those places where you could like as you go there and you spend like they track like your points and they can give you discounts or offers for different things yeah and 
And so they 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 were doing this company at that time. And um, I I just moved back to Nigeria and I, I met them and I was quite impressed with what with their vision. And then I think I saw their code. And I'm just like, well, I don't like good luck, good luck to you guys, mm. sort of deal. And I didn't really pay like I I mean I honestly I respect their hustle, but like I didn't really see much coming from that. Mm. And then, you know, as I, as I, you know, like stayed in touch or like saw what they were doing over time, I realized that, yo, they've ended up like pivoting. They're doing a, 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 a savings company. Like uh, they did a, a resume building service. I can't remember the name right now. Um, and then they ended up building uh, Piggy Vest. And like, so they've built a string of startups and uh, with all, all with varying success, but they've continued moving forward and building their talents and skill sets and, you know, um, public image yeah. and stuff like that. And so I'm, I'm sitting there looking at this and I'm stunned. And so today I was just I, like, I saw Piggy Vest is five years old and, you know, like the, the like notable, like people in the tech ecosystem in Nigeria created like a, a compilation video, like a, like congratulating them and stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, like these are people that were in the estates that, you know, like I, I knew or I saw back then. And, yes. you know, I'm truly impressed by how far they've come. And the same thing, like, I'm not just saying this because it's them and I saw their code back then. The same thing happened when I started a company, you know, like I started it, my, like people begged me to start this company. And I was just like, mm, it's hard to make money online. Like, where is this thing even going to go? Whatever. Yeah. And it wasn't until I did it. And like within six weeks, it was rivaling my salary that I was like, oh, wow. Like, yo, this thing is something. And, you know, like I need to take this more seriously. But so it's, it's not, I'm not just saying this because it's them, even things I've done. I've just looked at it as what it is right now, the current state yeah. and not seen much about the possible future. And so that's me. Someone who could actually build and use technology, how much more so other people who don't even understand the technology or all of that, like the possibilities and where things could go is not a thing that everyone can see. And so if you're getting feedback from people, I don't know if I'm a good person to get feedback from in the same way. Like when we're starting this, I'm just like, yeah, if, if, I, if it's just for me and you to listen to, and now it's like useful to other people and stuff like that. I'm not trying to be a pessimist, but I'm just trying to say there are people like me and lots of people like me, and this is how they see the world. So when you're seeking feedback, you want to be sure that the people can see bigger than people like me so that you yeah. can, Something where it starts today, but tomorrow is going to be big. You don't want someone who just looks at it as what it is today and be like, yep, no, this is just me and you in the house. <laughs> face me, I face you. This is our, our destiny. And, um, you know, you want someone who can envision a, a brighter future that you can all work towards and, or, or believe in, even though you don't have the resources to get there. You all believe it and see this big picture and can start moving towards it. I think what I'm getting from this also, and thanks for sharing that amazing story. Um, what I'm getting from this is to just uh, try things, especially in the tech space, where I know sometimes 
it, it might feel like we're trying to get it right the first on the first iteration. So it's like you, you want to build something. I know I go through this process where I want to build something and it's my desire that this first thing I'm building is the thing. Whereas mm-hmm. you wouldn't know until you put it out there and you just, you know, you, you decide for yourself in the life cycle, you know, for how long you want to put it out there for and then study it. And if it's working, you continue. If it's not working, maybe it's time to pivot. Um, and But in this case, I mean, you you were there when they were starting out. And who knows, maybe right now they're better coders, but, you know, their, their lack of great code or not wasn't a hindrance for them to innovate. Like they went through it regardless and continue to build. And it's, it's great to see them having this success. And speaking of Nigeria, I mean, I think this year, late last year to this year, you know, we've seen quite a number of tech companies, you know, with amazing exits. I mean, Paystack is a good example. There's definitely innovation going on, especially in a country where there's definitely, it's ripe for new ideas in the tech space. And maybe this is, this isn't about philosophies now, but for those who are, I guess, Nigerians in the diaspora, so outside Nigeria, but first of all, are you, are, are you, have you ever thought about doing something for, I guess, the, 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 for Nigeria in, in the tech world? And do you, have, do you have an idea of what that would be? Not, not when I say idea, I don't necessarily mean the idea of the product, but have you even thought about like, building something for that ecosystem? The ironic thing is that is where I have like, the biggest, wildest dreams, the things that don't make sense. <laughs> I'm like, okay, like... <laughs> You can't, you can't be imagining doing something like this. Um, that's Nigeria's ecosystem where I have the ideas to do things. Uh, things. Um, one of them, actually, um, is a transport service. Um, what I wanted to do was, like, build a network of, like, essentially Keke Marwa things. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to start as, like, a prototype in my estate and have like because one thing they don't have is like scheduled transport like a bus system yeah yes there there are buses but it's not like at 702 there'll be a bus in another five minutes another bus in another five minutes there's no timed scheduled Mm. bus routes i mean there are bus routes but not like a scheduled service and so what i wanted to do was start was build something like that and basically build a network of these uh, of uh, of these drivers and um i i think i i wanted to own the actual keke's that are doing this thing mm-hmm. and um basically so even if there's no customer drive by the, and like these are the stops you go to and keep going on routes in sequence and I had like, uh, so if that is working, then one thing I can do is like get like a screen and put on the back between the driver's side and the passenger side. So there's a screen there and you can take like little clips from like YouTube or stuff like that mm-hmm. and play there. So there's like entertainment on this, on, this, on this thing that you're watching. And as you do it and get enough business and traffic going, you could actually like pitch to like a bank, for example, and be like, I have a hundred thousand people that you use this service every day. Um, you you know, like if you want to advertise like a banking service, or if you want to sell SIM cards or this, 
you can run ads on these screen networks that people are using. And so in between the right. clips, you can play ads. And essentially, ads can subsidize the ride. And so you can charge people even less than your operating cost or what it needs to operate. And so you can essentially charge, like it, it doesn't cost as much for people to take this ride. And so you end up reducing the price for people. And mm-hmm. if you keep doing things like that and layering on services, like if you uh, basically doing, uh, see, I'm getting into it now, but you can see like these <laughs> are the place where I have, like, this is what I would love to accomplish. These are all the awesome things I'd like to build and do. Um, one of the other ones I wanted to do was like an estate, like a, a, a massive um, Wi-Fi network. Think of okay. it as like a think of it as like a local area, like you like know a, how you go like, a, like a hotspot. Thank you, like a hotspot. But instead of being a hotspot that provides internet, it's just like think of it more like a captive portal. Like mm. um, uh, I don't like the way that sounds. Um, but I know what but, you mean. I, I I see the URL sometimes when I go to Starbucks or something, and you see captive dot something, and you're basically trying to connect to that to that network, right? Right. But then think of it this way. If you're, you get that, right? But instead of connecting to get Wi-Fi or data, what you do, you'll be connecting and you'll get to something that's closer to what you have on an airplane where you have access to like movies, TV shows and stuff. And now this is on like my own server, a local server on that network. And so you don't need, we're not, you're not getting data. You're now just accessing my Wi-Fi, and you can watch the movie shows, the movie shows, TV things, comedy, all that that is on that network. And we just build like an interface for you to navigate it. Mm. And so it's, it's a lot closer to what would be a home entertainment network where you have like a, a hard drive filled with movies and music and stuff like that. And then you can connect to it through your, through the, through the, through the, um, Wi-Fi network that it's on. So you're not downloading from public internet out into your device. You don't need data to do this. You, once you've connected to the Wi-Fi network, you're accessing a, a hard drive that's on that Wi-Fi network. Mm. And so it's right there. And that would essentially be like your own broadcasting company, technically, because you can control what you want to put on the drive and give people access to it, and then you can charge. You would essentially be your own DSTV, mm. but for like a much cheaper cost because you're not like you, so you can charge people like 100, 200 naira a month. And all they need is their phone or their tablet. They, they, they bring their own device. Everything is like Wi Fi equipped these days. And so once you have that, you just connect and you you now have access to all this entertainment and stuff and it's going to be lightning fast to watch because it's from a local network and you just yeah so so now combine that with like the transport service you now have these screens that can pull off this this stuff from a local network that on, on the area you're watching and then you start connecting your network so like you have ikeja and you build your 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 Wi-Fi broadcasting things, and then you connect, and basically you map out an entire Wi-Fi network that covers Lagos, for example. Mm. Now, every everywhere you go in Lagos, you can just connect to this thing, and you have access to 
whatever is on that drive and you essentially become your own broadcasting company and there'll be a series of point-to-point wi-fi things broadcasting ones that spread it wider in an area and ones that transmit it over a long distance where there's no people but so if you're you're connecting to an estate two kilometers away you have like a system that shoots your wi-fi across to another receiver and that receiver broadcasts it in that area to make it wider so so this is what i mean like that like I don't know how I'm a pessimist, but also someone who... You're definitely a big thinker. <laughs> You're definitely, definitely... I mean, I, I can... I can. I just let you just roll because I can sense the passion in it. And if you've obviously, you know, thought about it, I give it some thought. But um, as, you were, as you were speaking, so a couple of things came to my mind. Um, these sound like um, heavy infrastructural or it definitely would impact the infrastructure of you know our community back home Nigeria, which I think is definitely ripe for innovation and new ideas. And the one person um, going back to the people researching, I thought about Peter Thiel uh, as you were talking, and he, and I'll tie in, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll let you know why I'm tying these two together. And so he's 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 popular for talking about monopolies, and he believes that startups should be monopolies. I don't think he means it in the traditional way we think of monopoly. So think of a company, um, like a, a company that has few competitors. Oh, let me rephrase. He he definitely believes that startups should be companies that create enough value where they where the chances of having new competitors is very, very difficult. So I mean he founded PayPal and at the time there weren't that many companies that could really really compete with paypal and so we think of a country like nigeria or or any african country where there are opportunities to do amazing things i find that if you really wanted to do something where you would have less competition you probably want to be doing something that uh, that has to do with infrastructure doing things that would affect a mass amount of people um do you think it's possible to create these innovations. I mean, right now, you're, both of us are here in Canada. Do you think it's possible for us to be involved with these innovations and not necessarily be physically in the country? Or do you think we, we have to be there to make this happen? Um, I don't know that we have to be there to participate. I don't think, sorry. I don't think that we need to be there to participate in these things. But um, it is helpful to be there and see what people are doing and going through and having to do with in their day to day. But that doesn't mean you must physically be there. It just is something that helps. Yeah, it, I, I, um, because when I think about, so I think about ideas for Nigeria and you know just anything back home. I always say to myself, I want to make sure it's something that that can impact a, a, a wider array of people. Because let's put things in perspective. Um, based on skill sets, we will be considered highly skilled people. You know, software developers, um, educated and, and all that stuff. And, you know, it'll be, apart from just the money, I mean, definitely the financial rewards come with it. But when you do something that 
uh, just helps the everyday person back home. I mean, we're talking about people who have to hawk on the streets to sell food uh, or to sell or just make a living. We're talking about the roadside mechanic. We're talking about the everyday street hawker, the, the shopkeeper, that kind of thing. And um, not trying to make things so complex because sometimes I'm, I, I don't want to be wearing this hat where I'm just like, oh my gosh, it has to be again, rocket science. No, just doing something that makes the everyday person happy. Um, I think that's a good way of creating a monopoly. And I'm not saying monopoly as for like, I don't want competition, but I'm saying monopoly as in we are creating value that, you know, you have a brand name that is recognized for that value. So for instance, we think about um, GSM networks back home, MTN, Globalcom, these companies, it's going to be very, very difficult to compete with them because of how much they are, they have invested in infrastructure, that kind of thing. And so maybe it's important to really think about infrastructural projects, especially in the tech space, and just look at, you know, how that can be impactful, you know, to, to a great number of people. Let me give you an example right now. Um, we talk, I, we've talked about Elon Musk in the past. Um, and um, SpaceX, and one of their projects is Starlink. And they're trying to build a satellite network that will, for internet, right. make it possible to get like faster, cheaper internet through satellites. Um, Elon Musk is somewhat like, if that project kicks off and goes the way as planned and envisioned, he will be disrupting the exact people you're talking about, MTN and all these uh, telecom companies. Mm. And he'll be doing it without ever necessarily stepping foot in Nigeria. Mm. So that kind of comes full circle to answer that question you asked earlier and um, talk about possibilities and infrastructure stuff. Um, it is useful to um, work in those sorts of spaces, but... Um, I don't know if it's the pessimist in me or just the way I think um, the world is. It's the person who you think is on the safest plateau. You know, like, oh, yeah, I, I have a network of horse, uh, horses and stables. I, like, this is the way humanity is going to transport. Or I own a rail system. This is the way we're going to be moving goods. Mm. And the world just changes on me. Like, so... The person, at, the person at the top has the most to lose, technically. Yeah. Um, so um, it is, um, it, it seems like a very indefense, like a very defensible position where you're the Goliath in the ecosystem. But um, time and time again, Goliath has been taken down. And um, yep. we have, like, if you look at the biggest company, like IBM, for example, IBM was like the big computing company. and who would have thought like a startup like Microsoft would be the ones to knock them on their butt and basically yeah. knock them to near irrelevance these days? Like if you put Microsoft and IBM, like you can't, you can't, you can't compare. Yeah, 100%. Like, yeah, so I mean, I guess infrastructure is a place where you can get massive advantages and um, you... You, but it's also like it's the the world changes in a way that infrastructure um, means that you can't pivot quickly. Um, 
and that is uh, an example I, I got um, I have relating to this from recent readings is oil and gas. Mm. Um, the people who built like oil and gas is like, hey, the world uses oil and gas for power. Like we're basically indispensable. And so this industry grew and thrived on that necessity. They used um, for centuries. They, yes. The, the, the biggest be- and best paid people were the engineers, the people who planned, built the equipment, the pipes and all of that. Mm-hmm. That from extraction to production and um, selling to consumers, the engineers were like the highest paid and well-respected people in this bracket. And then oil prices have gone crazy in the last few years for many reasons. Um, the again, Elon Musk's contribution to pushing electric vehicles and like mm-hmm. the um, crises we've had um uh, for example covid and the lockdown have meant air flights have basically tumbled by many many double digit percentages and uh, a lot of consumption of fuel isn't the same there was a point where we had negative oil prices just because there was more oil being produced than was being consumed in the world Sorry to um, cut you, sorry to cut you, but I mean, you brought up Elon Musk, right? And Elon is so big on um, like clean energy, clean vehicles. Aren't, uh, aren't, aren't we seeing like uh, a clash, a clash of, of philosophies where it's like he really, he believes in a cleaner planet and sustainability. And then there's the old guard that has been, you know, digging up fossil fuels. And now it's almost like, one is this again David taking on Goliath, and eventually, I mean, it's it's not over yet. I mean, the, most of the world, most parts of the world, people still drive combustion engines, right? But is do you really see a possibility that eventually, I don't know, maybe in our lifetime, but where the planet essentially just goes on clean vehicles, electronic vehicles, and that sort of thing? That's definitely a distinct possibility. I mean. If you had, like, at the beginning of the century, nobody would have imagined that we would be moving the amount of items that we do by air. The flight hadn't even existed, you know, and, you know, and when it did, it seemed like a hobbyist sort of project until somehow we were bombing each other Mm -hmm. and with it and, like, transporting goods and people moving them across the planet. Um, So... I guess what I'm trying to say is your vision of the future is it's hard to bank on and bet on a vision of the future based on where you're standing. Yes. Things can change quite rapidly and um, you would be quite amiss to sit there and believe that because I have all this infrastructure or the world looks this way, this must be how we'll be in future. And um I guess that was the moral of the what I was trying to say earlier, because there were people who were doing the um, the engineers were the ones who were the top dogs in the um, oil and gas industry. But in the more recent years, it's been analysts and um, basically stockbrokers, because what a lot of companies have derived their profits from is in tr- is in the oil trade. Trading right. like like commodity trade for oil, 
And so the um, massive engineer, the, the, um, the people who were like, oh, we extract it, we do all this, we produce it and sell it. Like, we just need to focus on optimizing those have come like in the areas of, as the shortages have come up and things have moved around, they have been the ones who have helped the company balance their books and keep making profit in these times because they are like doing long-term oil trades and buying it in future at a cheaper price than it is and, you know, betting that it would go down. And they've successfully used that to help save their company's money. Mm. And so instead of spending heavy equipment and like spending $50 to extract a barrel of oil that they plan to sell for 60, they make trades and buy it for <laughs> for $10 and sell it for 20 or 30 and even make more profits than them digging it out themselves. And so right. um, the, the old guard would have thought the engineers and extracting and optimizing that would be the way they would tr- turn their profits. But the way the world has changed in a way where the people who are traders and like more efficient at moving paper paper slips of oil are the ones driving the companies forward so um Mm. it's a it's a it's a very um risky position when you're when it seems like you have no other competition or like you're at the top because the the place where the change will come from may not necessarily be in the market or in obvious places, it would yeah. be some disruption in the way people see the world or operate in the world. And now, mm. you know, nobody's buying horses anymore. We're driving cars and your whole uh, saddle making business is doomed. I mean, it's just like today I mean, with the pandemic, uh, with so many things done online, Zoom has become like the thing. You know, if you have Microsoft Teams, that's obviously another competitor, but like, everything now is now online education instead of going to the class you're doing everything through zoom or through microsoft teams and so you're right i mean i didn't i don't think zoom necessarily thought about disrupting well and and not because they did on purpose but i don't think that they saw a situation whereby the entire world is dependent on the kind of technologies that they have putting workforce into but now i mean even right now our conversation is you know through zoom and it just goes to show how uh, certain things that may not look obvious could eventually be a factor that would just affect your everyday life Um, this this thing you just mentioned brings me to um the next person on my list uh gustava swift i don't think i'm pronouncing his name correctly but he was a butcher and um or uh, yeah he was a butcher he would go travel across america buy cattle transport them to a different place slaughter it have the meat sell it in his shop sell it to other people that sort of deal and um he gustavus in part of the thing was when they're transporting the these animals across the country they put the cow on a train and Mm. then the train takes them from place to place and then it gets slaughtered but when you slaughter a cow up to 60 percent of the weight of the cow 
is not edible. Mm. And so you're paying all this money to ship a livestock, but then you're only selling essentially 40% of the weight you're shipping. That, that's a lot of waste. tremendous waste business-wise. Now, so what Gustavus decided to do was try and find ways to ship frozen, to, to, to freeze beef and ship that. So you get the cow or the animal, you slaughter it at this point, you know, discard the bones, discard the things you're not going to sell, and then ship that across the country. That would tremendous, that would reduce the amount of what you you ship. This guy, um, I don't remember why I started talking about Gustavo Swift. Because uh, I, I was talking about um, Zoom oh, and things in, in interrupting your everyday life. Right. The train companies at that time were very resistant because they made more money shipping the full cattle, you know, and they resisted. But this guy persisted and essentially people at the time were used to buying beef that was freshly slaughtered and basically was raised close to where they lived, mm. you know. But then with this innovation of being able to ship frozen beef across the country and stuff like that, he ended up building a way for the modern meat industry to be what we know it as. And so he changed the way people bought beef. He changed the way people shipped beef. He changed a lot. And all of, all of this came in a few years, you know, like nobody quite imagined that this is the way, you know, like the, the way the world would go. So it's quite and gradual. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, he, he did this within his one lifetime. So I would say it was quite swift. Mm. No pun intended, but I heard it after I said it, but like <laughs> it happened quite rapidly. Like he, you know, like it, it just, it, the world changes. And if you look at from 1900s to 2000, the amount of things that changed in the world um, and the way the direction of the world that changed, you start to realize that we, because we're born into it, we see it as this like, oh, we have electricity, we have this, we have that. But you forget the points where um, electricity was a commodity and there were no appliances that existed for it. And then appliances existed, but there were no standardized outlets. And so your fridge came with something that was that screwed into your bulb, the bulb socket. And that's where it drew power to charge your fridge or to do any of the other appliances. And then they started iterating and standardizing on that. Like the world changed from no electricity, no cars, no planes, no any of that to what we have today. In- and, and if you think about it, I mean, electricity is, 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 fairly is relatively a fairly new invention i mean relative to is, how is. long we have lived on earth for that's and that's pretty amazing yes and like it feels like we've standardized around. like i still remember like so let's even take away tech um, electricity i still remember growing up a dvd uh, uh, not dvd a movie will come out 
and it's region coded, PAL and NTSC. Yes, yes. And video games were the same way too. Mm-hmm. And now there's digital this thing. You open, you open, you, get, you go to a website, and it doesn't matter like what what universal system you're you, exactly like things change. Like there are people who had businesses converting from PAL to NTSC and back again, you know, and now done. There's universal compatibility with our video, with our movies, with our thing, like to the point where like, I don't speak languages, but there are subtitles for comedy in, in Hindu comedy. And I just like sit there and I read the subtitles and now I'm laughing at like jokes from a place in the world that I didn't grow up in and I don't know the language, but I can enjoy that content. The world changes and it's, it's quite scary how unstable the future is when you think about it. So I- instead of thinking of like what is safe and what is reliable to bet on, maybe the real thing to do is to be making those bets and making those changes because you don't know where the world is going to turn to and you don't know what what will be useful tomorrow you can you know what is useful today and you know what was useful yesterday but what will be useful tomorrow like the guy who would be selling hand sanitizer in nigeria before Mm. pandemic would have all been laughing at him like an idiot and you know now he's like a a a prophet you know what i mean yeah well it seems like we always come back to that that unifying point of we don't know and we just got to keep going. And um, but at least this one is comes with a twist because, I mean, you talked about, you know, it's it's very easy to be biased by the world we see today because that's our obvious uh, living experience. But there's definitely. Yeah. Right. But there's definitely a, a world that's going to be out there tomorrow as long as we have life. And so it probably would require us to be much more imaginative. And I mean, if that means watching some sci-fi movies, I don't know, but um, definitely thinking about just having ideas and betting on yourself and saying, you know what, I think the world would be this way and probably use that as a guide. And then uh, just to get us to wrap this up, um, with, with having said all these things and with all this research and all this study, um, have do you do you have your own philosophies now? And what do you, if you have, could you share with us? Uh, yeah. So the philosophies I had down before we started our conversation was invention and experimentation. Mm. Um. That was a big part of the, I, I don't think I, I mentioned Gustavo Swift, um, James Dyson and Henry Ford. But the fourth person that I didn't mention or that I talked about, but didn't mention his name was Nikola Tesla. And um, yeah, and um, invention and experimentation was big for all of them. They spent a lot of time iterating on things, trying new things, just making stuff. and. Um, the, there were times where what they made in the past ended up coming back to be useful in mm. a future project. Like I mentioned, the um, ball barrel that um, James Dyson built, he, like, later on, like, like later on in his um, vacuum cleaner line, he ended up taking the idea of that ball barrel to make a, a, a vacuum cleaner that has, like, a ball, and it's, like, easily navigatable for, like, working around corners and stuff like that. And um, so 
all the research and stuff he put into that became useful <laughs> later on. But invention and experimentation is one of the key philosophies. Um, vertic vertical integration is another one. And um, that one you see more with the business people, um, Swift, Dyson, and Ford. They controlled from end to end as much as possible the production of their stuff, yeah. um, production to sales. And um, it helped them find places for optimization in terms of revenue and like ideas and production operations. They just vertical integration, like um, Henry Ford ended up owning like train tracks just because he was using them to ship um, um, iron from mines. So he owned mines where they extracted metals. He owned train tracks where they put the iron from, from the mines and shipped to his factory, which he converted into cars. And you can see like controlling all of those processes allowed him to continue making high quality product without charging as much. Um, you see the same with um, Gustavus Swift, who ended up like inventing refrigerated car, like not inventing, but building the first like useful refrigerated car. He wants to, he's, he's a butcher. He wants to ship his beef across the country and he ends up like experimenting and designing a refrigerator car. No other company wants to buy it or, or build it because they're making money off shipping the live animal. So he ends up building the, whole, the, the, the initial run of it and funding it and eventually became its own like business, Swift um, Refrigerated Life, where he is now shipping things through his frozen thing. Um, so <laughs> Swift and Ford ended up in the railway business just because they needed that to transport what they were doing from points to points. They, they were inventive and they looked into owning as much of the process as possible so they could control their costs and keep things down and tweak specifically to what they're trying to do. Um, so um, invention and experimentation, vertical integration, and the third one is resilience. These people faced a ton of uphill battles like honestly I, I i feel like i'm a massive wuss compared to these people and the things that they faced and continue pressing against is just shocking and unbelievable so um yeah. those are the three principles that common philosophies that stuck out that stood out to me their invention and experimentation vertical integration and resilience um those would be my three common philosophies that um, I'm taking away from the research I'm thinking about for this project. Awesome. Awesome. I like, I like the three points. Um, you said the resilience. Um, let me get them right. Uh, talk about resilience. Vertical integration, invention, and experimentation. Correct. Um, definitely, for me, I would definitely. Uh, I one of the things that stuck out to me was uh, learning. Just continue to keep building, and when I say building, it could be your skills, especially in the tech space. I I truly believe that it's important for our survival and just our ability to dominate. And from the examples that I that we've talked about today, it just seemed that. 
these people were constantly reinventing something, constantly building something, constantly improving something, even if it didn't make initial money, even if it didn't become an initial success, they just kept going at it. And that also ties into the resilience. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I got from Ray Dalio, because I, I didn't get the chance to talk about his story, but he all he also experienced failure when he made a bet thinking that the U.S. economy would head for a catastrophe, and this was in the late seventies, and he wanted to like bet big on that on that um, uh, principle that he had, and he was completely wrong. Um, the U.S. economy became uh, huge, and it, it had like the the biggest growth in and over it, it had the biggest growth in history for the next 18 years. So from the late seventies, I think all the way into the nineties, just consistent growth. And he learned from that. And what, what I got was he was open-minded and he didn't, even though he had his own philosophies, he wasn't afraid to correct them when he had new evidence showing that he was wrong. And so I definitely want to, take from that because it's very easy to piggyback and follow and just look at the successful stories, but we can obviously learn from people's failures and learn that if you're wrong about something, it's not for you. It's not for you to be ashamed of it, but you can, you can always go back and refine yourself and, and 